0: Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. This episode is brought to you by Praxis, discoverpraxis.com. Derek McGill, who was interviewed on an episode from season one, dropped out of the University of Michigan. He went from the Dean's list to leaving school. Why? Because he was bored. Not because it was too hard for him or he wasn't good enough for an elite school. It just wasn't good enough for him. It wasn't bringing him what he wanted. It wasn't worth it. The prestige and the pleasure of others that he was there, not a good enough reward considering the life that he wanted to build. He quit. He joined Praxis. He's a digital marketing guru, all self-taught. After being in the program, we liked his work so much, we hired him on as our marketing director. Derek is one of many examples of young people today who are realizing the world is changing. It's changing fast. There's more opportunity than ever to be your own signal, to be your own credential, to create things and demonstrate your value creation potential through what you've done in tangible ways. Build a website, build an online presence, get work experience. Don't worry. It sounds overwhelming, but you get all of that in the year-long Praxis program. It's not easy, but no great adventure is discoverpraxis.com slash apply, you can join Derek and many others in building the education revolution, starting with your own life. Welcome back to the podcast. Well, I guess when I say welcome back, it means if you were just listening to a previous episode. Otherwise, welcome. Today, I am joined once again by Zach Slayback, who has been on the show previously to talk about uh, education, aviation. Didn't we have another one in there? Innovation. Innovation, yeah. Innovation. Alliteration. Uh, today, Zach is talking about his new book, The End of School, which is just about to hit shelves. Yep. Um, Zach, why did you write this book? Uh, why is it... Um, well, I guess, why did you write it? We'll start
1: there. Yeah, so the, the book is a compilation of writings that I started on around this time last year, uh, just challenging myself to write uh, once a day for something like 30, 40 days straight. And I finished up, and I found that I had something around 70,000 words of content. And at that point, I was like, oh, wow, that's, that's a lot of stuff. And it was stuff that I found wasn't being said, or wasn't being said in the way that I wanted it to be said elsewhere. So I decided to compile it all in one kind of anthology on this topic with a kind of theme on the issue of education. Both at the K through12 level and at the collegiate level, you tend to find that education is first of all education is split up into this category of like education theory and education policy. And to be totally honest with you, I have no interest in education policy, right? <laughs> like, uh, school vouchers, they're probably a good thing. I don't know. I, it's not something I, I'm, I'm interested in getting caught up in. Uh, and it's also divided between K-12 through education and higher education. Yeah,
0: I have always found that really weird that many of the things people advocate for and praise about higher education – are things that are totally absent in mm-hmm. the K through 12 system. So, yep. like, there's a higher degree of choice among students about what kind of courses they can take. There's a higher degree of uh, th- professors are not authority figures who dictate quite to the degree that they do. Right. It's you know, it's it's sort of a step in the direction of choice, and everyone praises that. Which seems weird that that doesn't sort of alter the way that K-12 through 12 is viewed, and, and why education is separated into these two distinct sort of approaches has always been odd as well.
1: Right, yeah, so I, I wanted to address education in, in the, starting with the question like, what's the point of education, and education, as we tend to think about it, starts uh, when people are children, right? And what does it mean to be a child? Well, usually it means to be a child, it, it means to be a student, in the traditional sense of working in a school, right? We, we tend to think of children in one of three ways. Uh, biologically, legally, or socially. And biologically, you know, you could argue that people are children up until they're 25, which I think is kind of absurd. No one thinks of a 25-year-old as a child.
0: Well, I don't know. I've met uh, a few I, I've met. I've met some, like,
1: <laughs> 40-year-olds who are, who are children. But legally, you know, that's another big question mark area, and I think that's less interesting. Um, socially, I think, is, is more interesting, because we tend to think of children, when we think of them, we think of them sitting in schools, we think of them, we think of recess time, we think of school buses, it almost entirely revolves around the idea of school. And if we start with that, and then we move forward, we see, okay, something's going on with K-12 through education, where K-12 through schooling doesn't meet the aims of education, and then collegiate schooling
0: doesn't either. <laughs> so what's going on here, and how do we parse it apart? What would you say are the aims of of education, what, what do most people want and do you think they want the right thing or should they be looking at a different goal for education? Yeah, I mean
1: there are a lot of different theories. There are many theories on what the purpose of education is as there are schools, right? But I think that the one that is at the core of living a fulfilled life, which is the end that towards which most people who self-educate are working towards – then that's trying to figure out what you need to live that fulfilled life, right? What that means to you, what happiness means to you, what fulfillment means to you, and gaining the cognitive, psychological, mental, physical, intellectual tools that you actually need to achieve that, right? So I, I, in this sense, my whole approach on education is deeply Aristotelian, that everybody needs to educate in order to move towards a fulfilled life. And there are other competing theories that just blatantly say that that's not the case, right? The, the old Prussian theory is that education, the purpose of schooling, more than anything else, is conditioning. Hmm. And it's to make sure that people act in a certain way that is in line with the broader institutions that set up the schools, usually the church or, or the government. And I, I'm not going to go as far as to say that that's the current setup that we have here today. I think that most people are involved in education, whether they're teachers or school reformers do seriously want like what is best for the students but what is best for the students is allowing them to figure out what fulfillment means for them yeah
0: yeah i I wondered recently if the way that children are viewed especially as students as these these entities that you've got to force them to become Mm -hmm. what's good for society or what they should be i wonder if that approach will actually lessen as robotics and software get more advanced, because if if you need, oh well, who will who will you know take out the garbage and obey the rules and be a good employee and you know fight in wars and all this stuff? If you can have non-human entities right. uh, doing these things, then it frees up so much more scope for humans to sort of self-explore. And I wonder if that will kind of take that factory mindset pressure off.
1: I am more than happy to say that, you know, this, this idea of mine that the purpose of education is to find out how to live a fulfilled life and to work towards that is an extremely, you know, like bourgeois idea. I'm more than happy to admit that. You know, three, four hundred years ago, the purpose of education was to figure out how you don't die before 35, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, the purpose of education, you know, a thousand years ago was to go out and figure out how you can get food and shelter, right? I am more than happy to say that this is like an extremely... Bourgeois or capitalist idea, and I that that's a good thing. Yeah, right? like, let,
0: let's take advantage. This is why we've created all these labor-saving devices so that we could spend more time pursuing right. something that means right. And, and more to
1: similarly, us. I mean, if we look at the history of um, compulsory state schooling at the K through 12 level. Its aim of creating a citizenry that is good for working in factories or working in the military is just totally outdated. We have mm. a voluntary military now. Most people in in the West don't work in factories. Uh, more and more people. I, I've seen statistics that predict that up to fifty percent of people are going to be freelancers by the by twenty twenty five. So yeah, that direction I think is is something that we have to constantly think about in in education. I want to you know say that this artificial divide we have between childhood and adulthood is entirely artificial and that thinking of children as students does harm to the adults which they become and it does harm to them by infantilizing them because the process of becoming fulfilled is a lifetime process it's not something that one day you just sit around and you're like oh I am fulfilled it's something you have to constantly work towards and in that sense you always have to be educating yourself you can't, you can't ever end educating yourself because you're going to get to the age of, like, 25 and be like, okay, I'm done with my education. You have no meaning in your life. That's why people have quarter-life crises. Hmm. That's why people have midlife crises. It's because we have not educated them or they have not become educated properly.
0: Can, can you imagine if we treated physical health the way that we treat sort of intellectual health? Like, okay, Zach, you're 22. Now you're healthy. Right, you're good. The rest of your life, you just can, you know, reap the benefits of achieving health. You know, and like no, you have to continually it and it, and what you need to do to stay healthy changes as you age as well. It's it's a dynamic, ongoing process. Yeah. So this book, in terms of putting it actually together, I'm always interested in this stuff. You didn't set out explicitly to write a book. No. You set out to just write something every day because you knew you had a lot of ideas. You enjoyed the discipline of writing, and then you sort of looked back and said, "Whoa." I've got something here. A, a big theme has emerged yeah. on the idea of education school. So then what made you decide, okay, let's put this into a book, and what was that process like?
1: Well, a big part of it was just asking, why wouldn't I put it into a book, right? Uh, you know, the book's sitting right in front of you right now. It just feels good to hold, right?
0: it? It's No matter how much we move into the digital age, there's just nothing more like amazing than a physical book right. in your hands. Right. And, and,
1: it's one of these things that I'd like to have it all compiled in one place. I don't expect to make money off of this, right? I, I expect it to be something that somebody can give somebody else. I specifically compiled it in such a way that you can read any chapter without having read any other chapter. Mm-hmm. And I touch on a lot of different topics in it. I, talk, I touch on educating yourself after school. I uh, touch on K through 12 education. I touch on home education. A lot of these different things that, you know, if you have a family member who is skeptical of home education, you can give them the book, and there's two or three chapters on that. If you have a uh classmate who wants to drop out of college but they don't know like what the next step should be, I've got a couple chapters on that. If you've someone if you're a parent and you're thinking about how you're going to address education for your children, a couple chapters on that, right? It's designed in such a way that there are multiple subjects under the umbrella of school and under the umbrella of education. So I I thought at one point I'm like I'm going to write an original book and that, that just seemed like <laughs> Honestly, it seemed like something – I am not a writer professionally. Uh, I have other things I, I want to do. I want to be writing, but I figured I can just compile all of this into a, nearly a
0: 300-page book pretty easily. So in terms of the, the compiling itself, if someone has never been through this process – so you've got all these blog posts, yeah. and then are you like physically copying and pasting them into a Word document? Yeah. How are you deciding what gets included? Is that is that difficult?
1: So I had a, I, I went in, I made a Google sheet, and I just copy and pasted the URLs and the titles for everything on my blog that had anything remotely to do with education. And I ended up having like 80 posts. Uh, and... Then I went in and I had a column on the kind of like broad subject matter that is there. And then I had an intern, actually. Uh, her name, her name's Lacey, and she's absolutely phenomenal. She went through and she read everything of mine, and she sent me three different setups of a book hmm. with uh, three different ways that the, the post could be compiled. Because these posts are not in chronological order. Yep. They're in order of broad subject matter. And she and I went back and forth a couple times. We cut a couple chapters here and there. And I wrote a couple original chapters that I ended up just publishing on my blog anyway. Uh, And we looked at it and we're like, wow, this is a coherent, like, cogent theme to one book.
0: That's one of the really cool things about uh, blogging every day, but also just more broadly focusing on process and systems Mm -hmm. instead of on goals Mm -hmm. necessarily. So, I mean, for myself as well, I never set out with any goals like, I'm going to write a book. That just seems too overwhelming and right. scary, and yeah. I'm like, oh, I'm not a writer. I'm too busy doing stuff. If someone said, Isaac, do you want to write a book? I'd be like, no, I can't fit that in. I, it, it's intimidating, right? But I can blog every day, right. and then all of a sudden, you look back a year, two years, whatever later, you've got hundreds of articles, and you're like, hey, there's something here. Mm-hmm. There's a book here, and you and you get these benefits that you couldn't predict, which is which is pretty cool. Okay, so yeah, no, you, I mean, well, I even ahead.
1: found that. Um we ended up cutting a good chunk of the blog posts that were on the issue of education. I really have like two books. Yeah. One on the issue of here are the issues with schooling with a broader theory of education and fulfillment. And then one on here's this process of de-schooling yourself after you leave school. Mm -hmm. I touch on it in this book, but had a bunch of other, like, really practical, like, so, nuts and so bolts pieces. Like, here's
0: like, here's how we should think about education and, and how it's different from schooling and the potential problems, K-12 higher ed, mm-hmm. but almost a separate book on, like, okay, as an individual person, how do I right. undo sort of the bad right. habits? Here are the practical process. steps
1: you can take. I have a couple pieces on that in here because I, I wanted that somebody could, could pick it up and just say, like, okay, I, I want to step... O- You're saying that... Theorizing from an ivory tower is not not a good way of approaching the world, but you're just theorizing from an ivory tower. Yeah, yeah. So what's what's the practical applications here? So I lead with a chapter from uh, the book. You and I actually, uh, I contributed to your book, uh, Why Haven't You Read This Book. I'd lead with a chapter, Why Haven't You Dropped Out of School? Yeah. Which is very practical. Like Here are the steps if you are a young person looking at dropping out of college. Here are the steps you will probably have to go through. Here are some arguments for it. Here are some ways to think about it. And then I actually step into the theory in section one.
0: Do you have uh, plans for a second book?
1: Yeah, I mean, I've I've discussed it with Lacey, and we probably will look at doing something around the quarter three, quarter four of this year. Because most of it's already written. It would probably be slightly shorter, but it would, again, be much more practical. Like, here's how you interview at a job. Here's how you go out and you find these job opportunities. Here's how you think of yourself in X, Y, and Z ways.
0: So since most of these chapters have have appeared as mm-hmm. uh blog posts, articles on Medium and elsewhere, what has been some of the common what are some of the common criticisms or pushback that you've gotten on these ideas?
1: Yeah, one is that well, one is, and this is one I, I understand if you just read through some of the tone of the pieces, that it's just too negative. It's really pessimistic.
0: <laughs> you did tell me before this interview, you were like, yeah, I was reading this and it came off as a little more negative than I intended it to. Right, so. right.
1: <laughs> so I, I, am, I, I do think that you can read one chapter of the book individually and switch around a couple chapters. But towards, I, towards the end of the book, I get, I get into the practical steps on why we should be optimistic about education. We have to first look at okay, here's why the current setup that we have is failing us, and some of the criticisms I got are that you know i i people read this the wrong way and think that I'm you know saying that teachers are bad or education is bad, which is not true at all. The dedication in the book is actually to two of my teachers that I had in high school. I noticed that who are just were absolutely phenomenal people who just allowed me the time and freedom and the space to flourish in the way that I needed to.
0: That's one of those things that's People think it's a cop out, but it's not at all. The, the distinction between institutions and people, right. and incentive structures right. and people, so you can have really good people in almost any institutional setting, even if the institutions and the incentives themselves are really bad. Right? Like we, you know, we don't want. Um, horrible things you know maybe you could you could probably find a prison somewhere where there's people in there who are really good even though the incentives in the prison itself are really bad and they lead towards gang violence or whatever else I mean, i'm sure there's probably no, no examples. i mean in,
1: in the example i given there you know mrs warner and mrs swanevek were absolutely phenomenal people who you know i i remember in middle school mrs warner would uh give us passes so that we could go to her room where we really were just allowed to play we were allowed to you know, it didn't look like playing, but we were allowed to try all these different things out and engage our interests in ways that if I was sitting in a classroom studying for the PSSA exams, I wouldn't have been able to do. Similarly, Mrs. swanavec was my uh, newspaper teacher, and I, I ended up being the editor of the newspaper my senior year. And there were so many times when I was just – you know, people talk about senioritis when you're just bored and you're not doing anything in school. Well, I could at least go to the newspaper room where I could work on other projects. And that was really important. One of the chapters in there is a a chapter I call In Praise of Laissez-Faire Teachers. And Laissez-Faire in the sense of hands-off. Just very hands-off teachers. Teachers that provide a sanctuary for students in their school to really flourish in the way that human beings ought to pursue their education. The other criticism that I can see and I can understand I've gotten before is that I don't have a ton of citations in this book. It's not an academic book. I say in the beginning, this is not an academic work. It's not intended to be an academic work. If you're interested in the people who influenced my thought here, read the further reading chapter. And I I don't want it to be academic. I have citations where they they are
0: necessary. you get that. On on whose authority are you appealing? You know, know, it's funny. I was just talking about this with a friend yesterday. I actually hate – it has a place – But I hate sort of what I would call citation culture, which is kind of an academic approach to to learning. Because to me, genuine learning is about being transformed. Mm -hmm. So if there's a thinker that I really like and I've been reading them for months or years, I haven't just memorized arguments they've given me. In fact, usually I can't remember the specific arguments, but I have been transformed by them so that now... The, per- the Isaac who's talking to you after having encountered this thinker is actually a different one with a different mind than the one before. And so when I talk and make arguments, I'm, I am making arguments that come from those influences. Right. But it's because they've changed me. Not, so, so to say, for example, like if I write an essay about economics and someone's like, well, that sounds like very Misesian. You didn't cite Mises. I kind of find, like unless you're directly quoting or whatever, it right. just seems sort of weird to me. Like, okay, yes, Mises has transformed my thinking, and now it's, I can't even distinguish when it's me and when it's the influences that I've had, because right. they're all part of, the same, no, part I of mean, the same thing.
1: If you look at my further reading chapter, I, I lead with Aristotle, where I, I don't cite Aristotle anywhere in the book, but the book is extremely Aristotelian. I, I'm working on a virtue ethics idea of education, of the good life, and I also cite people like Nassim Taleb, whose just ideas of uh, anti-fragility and ideas of minimizing the downside are very important when you're thinking about your career plans and your education plans, and Peter Thiel, who put into words many of the things that I felt were wrong with elite higher education that I experienced outright. So all these people come together, and they form the, the kind of collection of thought that is the book, Right? They're not. I, I don't have like oh citation C page thirty seven of zero to one by Peter Thiel. Yeah. Unless I unless I have statistics or something that you know someone could say where did you get that from. You don't see a lot of footnotes in the book. I, I think the first footnote appears like midway through the book.
0: Yeah. So. How would you respond, and I don't know if you've ever gotten this criticism, mm-hmm. but especially when you're talking about younger children, right. uh, topics about childhood and and this artificial distinction or the way that children should be educated. If someone says, Zach, you are in no position to talk because you don't have children yourself, how would you how would you respond to that critique? I was a child.
1: Everyone <laughs> was a child, right? <laughs> I think it's a ridiculous critique. Um, first of all, most people who have children I think don't like being parents, and they didn't even think about it in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they offload their kids. They offload their kids into uh, sad but true into, into daycare for eight hours a day, and then they put them in something like soccer after school, and then they spend three hours with their kids at home in the evening. And they they're like, I am a parent. They wear this title proudly, right? Um, see that—that's kind of the negative tone that I, I, I want to avoid in the book, because <laughs> I really am—I I really am optimistic about a lot of these things. Where we live in a, a wonderful time for education, for self-education, and for everything from children's rights to uh, developing new forms of learning throughout your entire life. Uh, no, I mean I would say, look—you I, I, don't need to be a parent to see these issues, right? Everyone was a child. Hmm. Everyone who will be a parent will have children. So it's, and it's a vitally important issue regardless of where you sit in, in society. The end, the end chapter of the book, uh, which is the end of this book, uh, is addressed to like four different groups. It's addressed to students. It's addressed to parents, to educators, and to employers. The, all of those people are very, very – should have skin in the game when it comes to how we treat children. Mm. If you're an employer, you're going to either sell to them someday or you're going to employ them, right? If you're an educator, you work with them every day. If you're a parent, <laughs> you have them, right? If you're a student, you are one. And I think that so long as you have any kind of skin in the game, in that matter, that's all that matters.
0: There's this great uh, there's this great video clip I actually just saw recently on YouTube where Milton Friedman is, is giving a talk at Stanford or somewhere, and he's talking about... Poverty alleviation schemes and, you know, how markets are more more effective. And somebody says, you know, but do you know what it's like to be poor? And he says, well, first of all, yeah, probably more than anybody in this room. Like, has anyone else worked, you know, 12-hour days for 78 cents? And then everyone's sort of hushed. And then he, <laughs> says, he says, but you know what? That's a cheap shot. That's not even the point. He said, if you... He said, if you were dying of cancer, would you demand only to be seen by a doctor who is also dying of cancer? Yep. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not necessary in every case. You, you can learn things. And no, I find I with parenting especially, some of my most – when I'm struggling with parenting, I love asking people who don't have kids because they bring this sort of outside objective perspective that often just helps me see things that other parents were just so close to it and it's so emotional. We sometimes have a hard time seeing the Mm -hmm. the bigger perspectives.
1: And like one of the reasons I I compiled this book was a lot of these topics, you know, whether it's parenthood or uh, college or K through 12 are written by people so far removed from these things. And I'm removed from parenthood. I will admit that. But, you know, like dropping out of college, you and I talked at one point, you know, I, where I, I was a little doubtful. I was like, Oh, you know, I'm, I'm just going through this right now. Who wants to read that? But there's nothing out there like that. Yeah. Everyone who writes on it writes in on it like 30 years in retrospect, in retrospect yeah. which, is, which is very, very different than actually while you're going it, through the process.
0: And it creates this false standard as well. Like, okay, well, once I've sort of made it and I'm a household name and a multimillionaire, I can write about how, look, I dropped out of college and I succeeded. But that sort of makes it like the only way that you can prove it was a good idea is if you attain some, some huge standard of success where your whole thing is I'm living it right now and I'm enjoying, I'm sort of in pursuit of the Aristotelian good life Mm -hmm. right now. And I feel like I made the right choice, even though there's no like external indicator that says, Oh, he's arrived. You know, And I think that's, I like that. Okay. So who should read this book? Are there like specific people who are asking specific questions that will immediately connect to what's in here?
1: Yeah. I mean, anybody who has ever sat in a classroom and thought like there, this, this doesn't seem like education, whether it's somebody who remembers like myself, you know, doodling in class and thinking about going home and the, even the video games I played after school and what I learned from those versus what I learned sitting in my math class in fourth grade. Right. Anybody who, is almost nostalgic for that playful type of learning that you feel when you're a child. And I think that nostalgia is good and you should try to preserve that nostalgia because there's a certain element in our culture where people f- start feeling nostalgic of that. And they're like, Oh, well that's, that's what differentiates children from adults. Huh? And I'm an adult now I'm, I'm serious. And it's like, well, no, if you actually look at one of the people I do cite rather extensively in the book is Peter Gray. Uh, he's a psychologist at, I think Boston college. Who has done research on this and has shown that the kind of playful learning that we do when we're children is how we've evolved to learn. So if you're if you're nostalgic for that at all, you should absolutely pick it up. Um, if you're a parent who's thinking critically about your children's education, which unfortunately is a small a small slice of parents, but. If you're a parent thinking critically about your children's education, you should pick it up. Um, If you're a homeschool parent, you know, I I write extensively about that and there. I was not homeschooled myself, but I have uh, found that community one of the most fascinating and one of the most uh, maligned of any of the ones that I've run into. If you're an employer, I think that's vitally important. The last section of the book, the third section, talks a lot about employment, about credentialing, about skills, how you should approach credentialing in a world of credential inflation uh, and so how, to, so
0: how to look for what really creates value for your company, right. and and not accept and not lock the yourself out of credential like, as a signal. Yeah,
1: not, not lock yourself out of the all the good talent on the mar- market that is not uh, obvious via credentials. I, I
0: would almost say that this book is a great fit for anyone at any stage of the education path who is who feels like they're about to make a decision mm-hmm. or they want to, like. They're considering a change. They're considering dropping out, or considering homeschooling their kids, or considering approaching education different. Because you're writing it, as you said before, these were all written as you were in the midst of making these changes. Right. And so they have a very sometimes they're they're theoretical, but but they're still very much from a position of this is what you ought to be thinking through as you're considering approaching education in a right. different way.
1: And then I have the the advantage of in the introduction and conclusion. Kind of approaching a little bit more in retrospect, coming back to it a year later and saying, you know, the the conclusion of the book, like I said, is is very practically minded. Like, okay, so what are the next steps? Mm-hmm. If you're a parent, I urge you to you know be open to differences in education, whether it's your uh, college age child deciding that they want to take a year off from school, or if you're uh, contemplating homeschooling. Uh, if you're an employer, you know, try try removing the credential requirement, see what
0: happens. Mm-hmm. Things like that. So. To bring it down to action, where can people go to purchase the book?
1: It's on Amazon.com. Okay. If you just uh, search The End of School, you'll find the Kindle copy, uh, and the print copy will be available uh, first week of May. Uh, the, print, the Kindle copy right now is just a pre order, but I have it uh, half off on that. And if you prefer print, uh, the first week or so, I'll also have it half off. On Amazon.com, uh, my website is zackslayback.com. That's z a k s l a y b a c k.com. You can find a link to purchase it there as well, and uh, I, I I encourage you to pick it up. It's like I said, it's it's not it's not this groundbreaking original contribution in any kind of way that you you might expect from like the Wealth of Nations, but I'm really Proud of what I've been able to put together in retrospect. Sitting here,
0: hey, I don't, I don't know that Adam Smith knew his stuff was groundbreaking at the time either. Who knows? (laughs) Who knows? We could look back and say that was the May first, two thousand sixteen, was when it all changed. They say I
1: think it's I think it's Reed Hoffman's quote that uh, if you're not embarrassed by the first version of your product, you launch too late. I feel the same is true of writing. So I, I hope to look back on this and be a little embarrassed by it. Um,
0: <laughs> we'll bring you we'll bring you back on the day when you decide it's embarrassing. That would be that would be great. Zach, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Isaac. You can check it out on Amazon, the end of school. You can go to zackslayback.com.